0: Spirit explicitly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons through the hypocrisy of liars whose consciences are seared. They forbid marriage and demand abstinence from foods that God created to be received with gratitude by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, since it is sanctified by the word of God and by prayer. If you point these things out to the brothers and sisters, you will be a good servant of Jesus Christ, nourished by the words of the faith and the good teaching that you have followed. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, MK. Well, good morning again, everyone. My name's Eric, one of the pastors here at Trinity. And so today, as we just heard read, um, we are going to talk about the teachings of demons. And you're probably wondering what is all that about. We'll get to that. We've been in a series for the new year called "The Signs of Life," the metrics of spiritual health. You'll see that. On the front of your bulletins. To begin the year, we're asking the questions, what are the indicators of a vibrant and healthy spiritual life? What metrics should we be looking at to answer that question? And maybe what metrics should we not be paying attention to that we tend to focus on? First Timothy is a letter written by the Apostle Paul. It's written to his friend, his protege, In ministry Timothy, who Paul assigned to this ministry place. It's uh, in a place called Ephesus at this church. Paul had received a report about how things were going in this church, and things he heard in this report were very troubling to him. He saw a lot of signs of unhealth from what he heard, He saw a lack of vibrancy in the church, and so he wrote this letter to Timothy to restore health and to restore vibrancy to the church. So far, just to recap, what have we looked at? We've looked at love, which Paul says at the beginning of this letter is the most important metric of all, the most important sign. We've looked at grace renewal stories, these stories we tell of God's grace as a sign that we really get the message of the gospel and who Jesus is. Last week, we talked about prayer. Now, you may notice that we're skipping over some of the sections in 1 Timothy, if you've been with us, and we're not going to be able to cover all of the texts here in 1 Timothy. But I do hope to return to uh, some of what is said in chapter 3 on leadership in the church, when Lord willing, we ordain and appoint our diaconate, at the end of March. So we'll come back to some of that. Today, our topic is discernment. Discernment, what is it? Broadly speaking, it's the ability to tell the difference between things. It's the ability to tell the difference between right and wrong, true and false, better and worse, good and better and best. Now, at the heart of this passage that we just read... Is something that may be a little bit different for us to consider, especially as one of the most important signs of life and of vibrancy in our spiritual lives. And let me put up a slide here. This this text is telling us this at its very heart. Just as it is harmful for us, spiritually speaking, to allow what God forbids, it is equally harmful and unhealthy to forbid what God has given to us, to receive from Him with thanksgiving. I just want you to think about that for a moment. Say, well, it's harmful or unhealthy for us, according to the Bible, to allow what God forbids. So these are all the thou shall nots, thou shall not this, thou shall not that. Maybe it's your experience that Christianity is more known for these things. What does God forbid? What does God say not to do? Well, that's important. That's important to spiritual health. But what this text is saying, and I hope to develop this morning, is that just as those things are important, it's just as important. It's just as important that we realize it's equally harmful and unhealthy to forbid what God has given to us to receive with thanksgiving. These are The thou shalls, the thou shalls of God are just as important as the thou shall nots. And that's a vibrant part of faith, knowing the difference between the two. Now, I've entitled this message, Cultural Discernment, Culture. i put that word in front of discernment. Culture, that's what Paul is dealing with here. He's talking about food and marriage, as we see in this text. Those are some of the core uh, matters of culture. Cultural discernment has to do with how we engage all the various aspects of culture. Culture is a very broad word. It has to do with music and TV and movies and food and recreation and more. This This text is guiding us with questions like, well, what do we receive and enjoy? What do we not receive? Is there anything that we need to reject and why and how do we discern the difference? Now, I know the word discernment is not here, but the concept I think is, and I think this is one of the most important texts for us and how we learn what discernment is, how it works, and why we need it. So here's how we'll proceed if you're following along and taking notes, you'll see this in the outline. We'll fill in the blanks as we go, but first we'll look at a warning, a warning at how important this idea of discernment is, a practice of discernment is. Then we'll see how Paul goes into the specifics of the issues of discernment in this church as he talks about food and marriage, and then he highlights the value of good discernment and how discernment is a part of what leads us into a healthy, spiritual, and nourished life. So let's start first by looking at the importance of discernment. Is it really one of the vital signs of faith, one of the metrics of spiritual health for for a Christian, for a church to understand this? Is this idea of discernment right up there with love and understanding the grace of God and prayer from what Paul says here, it seems crystal clear that the answer is yes. Look at verse 1. He says, the Spirit explicitly says in the latter times, not just the Spirit says, the Spirit explicitly says in the latter times. The latter times is the way that the New Testament describes the period of time between the first and the second comings of Christ. So the latter times was then, and the latter times is now the times that we live in. And Paul says it's clear, it's explicit. Discernment is of crucial importance, and he tells us why. He says here in verse 4, what does the Spirit say very clearly? That in latter times some will depart from the faith over this issue of discernment. Lack of discernment, he says, causes people to leave the faith. And that's as serious as it gets. When discernment isn't properly learned and exercised about what God forbids and why and what God wants us to receive and why, Paul says it can cause people to leave the faith. And this can happen. In two directions. How does this happen? What does this look like? Well, some people might say, well, Christianity, the gospel, it's too soft. This idea of grace, it's too soft, it's too lenient. And some of these people will depart from the gospel into a legalistic distortion of the faith, paying attention to rules, more concerned about what is forbidden, what to abstain from. That's what's happening here. So it's no longer about Jesus. It's no longer about a relational connection with Jesus in love. It's about a moral code and behavior and a checklist. On the other hand, some people will say, well, the gospel, Christianity, it's too restrictive. It's too regressive. And some will leave the faith for maybe a more permissive version of the faith or leave the faith altogether. And here's the point that Paul is making. Without proper discernment, what's happening is those who depart, they aren't leaving real Christianity. They're leaving a distorted version of Christianity. So lack of discernment can cause people to depart from the faith, Paul says, because a lack of discernment gives people a distorted view of the faith, of the gospel. And what Paul says here is that distorting or falsely representing the gospel is the main strategy or one of the main strategies of the forces of spiritual evil. He calls these forces deceitful spirits. He says it's the teaching of demons. And we go, whoa, what is that all about? In our modern world, we may have a hard time accepting that there are spiritual forces at work in the realm of ideas. But Paul's point here is that these forces are working behind the scenes. People are not aware that this is happening. No one says, okay, that was an interesting sermon, that was a good class, that was a good book that I read. Now let's go see what the deceitful spirits have to say about this. Let's go ask the demons about this question. He's saying that's not how it works. It's behind the scenes. It's in the realm of ideas. And the Bible says that Satan doesn't come out in the open. Rather, he masquerades as an angel of light. He works in deception and in distortion. Here's the strategy it goes like this If we can convince people that obeying God is restrictive, stifling, God is a God of rules, and if we can get people to pay attention on forbidding and abstaining, then we've won. Because we win if people believe that and live like that's true and opt for a religion of rules, focusing on what is forbidden and abstaining. Or we win if people think that if that is true of God and Christianity, then I don't want to have anything to do with a God like that. You see, the strategy wins either way. And this is the deceit or the lie of Satan, going all the way back to the garden in Genesis 3, when he came to Eve and said, did God really say, why did God say that? Because He's holding back from you. There's something that you need that God has not given. Look at this rule of God, look at this forbidding God taking Adam and Eve's attention away from all that God had given them to enjoy to this one thing where God said, this is not good for you. From there, Satan distorts Adam and Eve's view of God. And you see how it got into Eve's thinking because she said, yeah, God did say, don't eat from that tree and don't touch it. Well, God never said, don't touch it. But here you see the distortion creeping into Eve's thinking that, yeah, God is a God who forbids. God is a God of rules and restriction. He's holding back from us. And this is where we find the origin of sin and our separation from God. So a lack of discernment can cause people to depart from the faith because it gives people a distorted view of the faith. There's one more point here. Paul says neglecting discernment can also sear the conscience. What does that mean? Our conscience is that part of us that takes our beliefs and our convictions and and put those into practice, into specific decisions. It's how belief operates in the realm of behavior. Our conscience is discernment in action in the moment. What's right and wrong? What should I do? What shouldn't I do? What's better in this situation? So conscience is the faculty of decision. And in verse 2, Paul is saying it's possible when we neglect discernment for our conscience to become, he says, seared. The image here is of a hot branding iron searing somebody's flesh so that it doesn't feel, it doesn't function. When we make choices to do things or not do things without exercising proper discernment, from a wrong view of God, from a wrong view of the gospel, the more that we do that, Paul says, the less we are able to discern. So discernment, Paul is saying, is very important. Discernment builds the conscience. Discernment keeps the gospel from distortion and guards us and others from walking away from a distorted version of the faith. I've been reading a book. It's been recommended to to many of you who are in our student ministry. It's called Faith for Exiles. It's about what makes for a resilient faith in our modern technological age. They call our our current age, it's it's a book by David Kinnaman and a guy named Mark Matlock who's worked with youth uh, for many years. David Kinnaman works for Barnum. And as they study what makes for a resilient faith, especially for young people, they've concluded that cultural discernment is one of the five most important factors. And what they've noticed is that in our technological age, which they call our our digital Babylon, uh, our choices are infinite. The complexity of life is more real to us than ever as we have the world at our fingertips. So much information, so many choices, so many versions of what is right and wrong and good and better. And often how that affects us is it rises our stress level and our anxiety because we wonder, what is right? What is wrong? What should I do with my life? What should I invest my time in? There's so much stress because there's so many choices. And they say, this is why cultural discernment maybe is more important than ever, that we understand what the gospel is and how it guides our conscience into what is best, better, good, what should be for us and what shouldn't. Discernment is vitally important. Okay, if it is important, then how do we do it? The practice of discernment in verses 3 and 5, Paul, what he does here is he models this for us in a way that helps Timothy with the issues that were um, at hand for him, the ones that he needed to deal with, marriage and food, but also in a way that apply, I believe, more broadly to any issues we face that require discernment. What were the issues in this church? Look at verse 3. It says they, certain people, were forbidding marriage and certain foods. They were demanding abstinence from different foods. Now, that's an interesting combination. People were teaching, if you want to live a life acceptable to God, then don't get married and don't eat certain foods. Now, why? What was going on there? This isn't the only place in Scripture that these two things appear together. You can look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7, 8, 10. Paul's talking about Marriage and how we deal with the foods that we eat. What, then, do marriage and food have in common? And the answer isn't that they can both cause you to gain weight. That is not the answer, (laughs) even if that happens to be true. The answer is pleasure. The answer is pleasure. Good food, sexual pleasure in the context of marriage, They are sources of pleasure. And here, these teachers were saying, and that's why they're wrong and forbidden. So what was behind this teaching? All this forbidding and abstaining was a belief that went like this. If it's pleasurable, it's sin. Or it's probably sin. We should suspect it might be. Now, I want to pause there for a moment and just ask you, If it's pleasurable, it must be sin, or we should suspect it might be. Is this what Christianity teaches? Is this, even if you would say no, is this what it feels like Christianity teaches to you? We have some of our kids here, third through fifth graders. I want you to answer this question in your mind. Our middle schoolers, our high schoolers, those of you who have been Christians for many years, those of you who are thinking about the Christian faith is this what Christianity teaches? If it's pleasurable, that's probably sin. Does it feel that way to you? Our answer to this question is more important than we realize. Because it is a starting point for understanding who God is. All matters of cultural discernment. And it is a question that Christians and the church, has got, we've gotten wrong. We struggled with throughout church history. Now, when it comes to pleasure, there are two directions that we all tend towards. Especially when we mix in religion and pleasure. What happens we tend towards what is called a dualism, separating the physical and the spiritual, the heavenly and the earthly. Dualism. On the one hand, we hyper-spiritualize. We say if it's physically pleasurable, it must be or probably a sin. We could call this an asceticism. And most people tend to believe that if you're talking about religion, then that is what religion teaches. Most people feel that religion tends towards an asceticism. If I get more religious, say goodbye to pleasure, right? The other direction most people take in our secular world is to under- or unspiritualize life, believing that if it's physically pleasurable, then it must be okay. As long as no one is hurt, why not? We could call that hedonism. On one hand, is asceticism on one hand is hedonism, both separate the spiritual from the physical. What Paul is saying here is that Christianity is not asceticism. Christianity is not hedonism. Christianity brings both the physical and the spiritual together as they were meant to be. Look at verse 4. If Christianity is not asceticism or hedonism, what is it? It is this. Everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving since it is sanctified by the Word of God and by prayer. That is, with discernment. This is the model. You see what Paul's doing? He's going back to chapter 1 in the Bible. Genesis 1.31 says, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And Paul says, let's take that seriously. It's the starting point. We have to start here with the doctrine of creation. It's the starting point of faith. It's the first thing we say when we say the Apostles' Creed, I believe in God the Father, maker of heaven and earth. Not separate realms. Realms that are meant to be integrated together. If you don't start here, you will end up with a distorted faith and a lack of discernment. So this is vital. We have to have the whole story of the gospel, not a partial or an incomplete version. Think of your favorite book. Think of your favorite story or movie. If you cut out the introduction from that story or book or movie, or if you cut out the conclusion from that story... Would it make any sense? Would it be any good? But that is what we often do with the gospel. We cannot take a four-chapter story, creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. That's the story the Bible tells. We cannot turn it into a two-chapter story, fall and redemption only. Because when we start with sin, which is a reality, In Scripture, if we start with sin, we don't understand why sin matters. If we start with sin and move to redemption, we don't understand what we're redeemed to. We understand what we're redeemed from sin, but not what we're redeemed for. We must start with creation, and we must also end with restoration. And this, this whole gospel so important for discernment, guards against asceticism, which is a distortion of the faith. C.S. Lewis says it like this, there's no good trying to be more spiritual than God. God never meant man to be a purely spiritual creation or creature. That is why he uses material things like bread and wine to put the new life into us. We may think this rather crude and unspiritual. God does not. He invented eating. He likes matter. He invented it. The problem is not with the physical world. The problem is with sin and the rupture between us and God. This also guards us from hedonism. Miroslav Wolf is a theologian um, from Yale. Recently, in a talk that he gave, it's a great talk. You can find it at the Veritas Forum website or podcast, He was tasked with offering an answer to the question of, what does Christianity have to offer the modern world? What does Christianity have to offer the modern world? And his answer was, we have the key to the enjoyment of the world. That's what we offer the world. In that that talk, he said this. caught my attention when I heard it. I was like, wow. The major defect, he says, of our modern civilization is the separation of meaning and pleasure. The major defect of our modern civilization, he says, is the separation of meaning from pleasure. We have more access to pleasures than ever, more food, more good coffee, more good wine, more good beer, more access to sexual stimuli, more TV, more movies, more travel, More everything, but not more joy. Why is that? Not more joy, but more anxiety. And he argues that pleasure without meaning cannot and does not satisfy. And at a point, it ceases to be pleasure at all. I'm going to adapt an illustration he uses from his own life. I'm going to use my my life to explain this. Because what Paul is saying here is something that Christianity and the gospel does offer the modern world, the enjoyment of the world. Let me explain through this illustration. Two scenarios. Both have to do with chana masala. Chana masala is an Indian dish. It's chickpeas, so it's an Indian vegetarian dish. And it's like one of the only things that I can make really well. My dad taught me how to make this. I watched him for many years make incredible chana masala. And so the first scenario is sometimes like only like two or three times a year do I get to do this, but I'm making my chana masala in my house. I have to cut up the fresh ingredients. It takes time, a lot more time uh, than I would like, but it's always worth it. I make the chana masala. I'm sitting down with my family, maybe inviting some friends over. I'm always excited to share this dish, and we eat it. And it is good. I'm not going to lie. It's good. I'm not, I'm not bragging, but it's good. And we enjoy it. It tastes good. But as I'm making it, I'm using a wooden spoon because my dad always cooked with a wooden spoon. He's no longer with us. So I remember him. And as we eat, I'm remembering my dad making this. I'm remembering my family eating this. And I'm eating with my family in my home. And there's deep pleasure and many different layers of pleasure. The memories. The memories of family, and of relationship, the taste of food, connecting to my dad who's no longer. All all that is wrapped up in that experience. Now, scenario two is I go to the best Indian restaurant in Orange County, and they're known for their chana masala, masala. And I sit down, and it's a fancy restaurant. It's a beautiful place, and I'm sitting at... This table and I get served this incredible chana masala. maybe it's better than mine, I don't know, but maybe it's just as good, and I'm eating it, and I'm going, "Wow, what a nice restaurant in a nice place. But I'm sitting here all alone, eating the chana masala. It's good. There's pleasure. I enjoy the taste. But it's not multi-layered. It's not multifaceted. I could go back to that restaurant over and over again. But at some point, I'm just going to lose the pleasure. But I'll never lose the pleasure of making my dad's chana masala for my family. Do you see the difference in the two scenarios? Both are pleasurable. One is within a story that has great meaning. One is without story. It's just for the pleasure itself. And seeking the pleasure itself will never deliver what we hope to get from that pleasure. Friends, my Christian friends, we have the story, we have the meaning that is the key to the enjoyment of the world. Everything created by God is good, but nothing created by God is God. Only God is God. Everything created by God is good, but nothing created by God is God. In Romans 2, 1 through 12, we read this in our time of confession. We see Paul recommending the practice of discernment in action, and he says, In view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. That's worship. Don't be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so you may discern what is the good and pleasing and perfect will of God. It takes thinking. It takes Asking and pursuing answers to questions like, what is good and what can we receive? What is sinful and fallen and should be rejected? What is broken in the world and needs redemption? This practice of cultural discernment within the story of the gospel builds the conscience. So what I'm not, what I'm not saying is we don't need to do a Bible study or have a prayer meeting to figure out, should I eat this fish taco or not? Let me find a verse on fish tacos in the Bible that doesn't exist. Or even other matters where we say, should I watch this TV show? Or should I determine, how do I determine what sexual fidelity is? Some things are very clear. Some things are not. As you learn the whole story, the work of discernment builds your conscience. So you make decisions and you can say yes or you can say no from a place of faith. This can be an oversimplification, but let me offer this to you based on this passage. How does the practice of discernment work? Paul says, all things can be sanctified by the Word of God and prayer. So, if used alongside thinking well in the whole story, I think this works. We can say this. Should I, shouldn't I, good, bad, better, best? Can I thank God in prayer? Before or after enjoying this? Can I thank God in prayer? Before or after enjoying this? G.K. Chesterton said, You say grace before meals? All right. But I say grace before the play and the opera and grace before the concert and the pantomime and grace before I open a book and grace before sketching and painting, swimming, fencing, boxing, walking, playing, dancing and grace before I dip the pen, and the ink. Anything we can say grace for, God says, enjoy it. I made it for you. The importance of discernment, the practice of discernment, and finally, let's talk about the value of discernment. We've already said this, but I want to unpack it further. The value of discernment is that it guards the gospel, the very heart of Christianity, from distortion. So practicing discernment like this is a part of how we guard the very essence of the gospel. How so? Well, why were people forbidding marriage and food and pleasures? Why would somebody do this? Why would somebody say we're anti-pleasure? The answer is they were trying to fix a distortion of the gospel. But their fix was another distortion. And this happens all the time. We can move and say there's something that I'm not sure about I don't know what God wants, so maybe I'll move into asceticism or legalism. And if it's too legalistic and it's too rigid and it's too rules-based, we say, that's not it. I need to move into hedonism or what we would call license and freedom. We fix one with the other and back and forth and so on. People in this church were worried about other people saying, I'm accepted no matter how I live, no matter what I do and don't do. Isn't that what grace is all about? They said, no, that's wrong. God is holy. We are sinners. He can't accept our sin. So only those who forbid these things and abstain from those things can be accepted by Him. You see what they were doing? They were fixing hedonism with asceticism or legalism. They were saying, we are accepted because of how I live based on what I do or what I don't do. That gains me acceptance with God. But the gospel is we are accepted by God because of what Jesus has done for us. He removes our sin. He gives us his acceptance. What do we do? We receive with thanksgiving. That is what we do. That is the gospel, the God who made us to receive his good gifts with thanksgiving is the God who saves us by receiving with thanksgiving, is the God who sanctifies us by receiving with thanksgiving, is the God whom we will worship forever and ever, receiving all of His goodness with thanksgiving for eternity. Romans 1 says, In the entrance of sin, humanity got off track. Because of a, of a refusal to glorify God and give Him thanks. What's operating underneath this asceticism and this hedonism is a refusal of thanksgiving. Hedonism says, If you made these pleasures, then I deserve to enjoy them. I deserve it. The legalistic heart says, I denied myself pleasure, so I deserve your acceptance. Both are a refusal of the gospel, a refusal. Of Thanksgiving. A few final thoughts. Not only does this guard the gospel, the value of discernment is that it reminds us of the goal of the gospel. Not a list of do's and don'ts of what is forbidden and not, but God Himself. When we're trying to build discernment, we realize quickly that God didn't give us a detailed instruction manual for every cultural question we might have or every pleasure. Why not? Why isn't there a book on that or more instruction on that? Well, sometimes we joke around in marriage or in parenting. We say, I wish this person came with an instruction manual. Wouldn't it be so easy? So if they say this, turn to page 34. Oh, okay. Okay, honey, um, here we go. Oh, 34, yes. Or if my kid is crying, turn to page 77, and here's what you need to say. Now, that sounds appealing, but if we had the manual, what would we be missing out on? We would be missing out on the relationship itself. The person You learn what pleases your spouse. You learn what pleases your children and your friends to take joy in what gives them joy. This is how you enjoy them, is it not? Ephesians 5.10 says, Try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord, that which is good and right and true. Earlier I said, just as it is harmful for us to allow what God forbids, which is often what we're known for, it is equally harmful and unhealthy to forbid what God has ordained for us to receive from Him with thanksgiving and joy. Why? Because we need both to know and enjoy Him. I'm going to close with a quote from John Stott. I think he just said it so well. He said, We should determine to recognize and acknowledge, appreciate and celebrate all the gifts of the Creator, the glory of the heavens and of the earth, of mountain, river, and sea, of forests and flowers, of birds and beasts and butterflies, and the intricate balance of the natural environment, the unique privileges of all our humanness, rational, moral, social, spiritual. As we were created in God's image and appointed His stewards, the joys of gender and marriage and sex and children and parenthood and family life and of our extended family and friends, The rhythm of work and rest of daily work as means to cooperate with God and serve the common good and of the Lord's day when we exchange work for worship. The blessings of peace, freedom, justice, and good government and of food and drink, clothing and shelter and our human creativity expressed in music, literature, painting, sculpture, and drama and in the skills and the strength displayed in sport. Listen to what he says. To reject these things is to abandon the faith since it insults the creator to receive them thankfully and celebrate them joyfully is to glorify god who richly provides everything for our enjoyment which is a quote right out of 1st timothy chapter 6 is this a god you would want to know Is this the God that you do know? This is the God of the gospel. Paul says to Timothy in verse 6, If you point these things out to the brothers and sisters, you'll be a good servant of Jesus, nourished by the words of faith and the good teaching that you have followed. This is a part of how to have a nourished and healthy relationship with God to enjoy His goodness, to learn to be in a posture of receiving and thanksgiving. The word, therefore, point these things out, the word is used to place stepping stones over treacherous waters. Point these things out. Show the path, He says, Timothy, over the treacherous waters. On the one hand is the joyless life of legalism, what's forbidden and the rules and the do's and the don'ts. On the other hand is the joyless life of hedonism, pleasure without meaning. You follow and step on the stones of the gospel, and you find a God of great joy who calls you to live all of life receiving with thanksgiving. Amen. Let's pray.